if we have this treasure, what is it? To get that answer, we need to look back to verse 6. It is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, unusually for Paul, that's quite a complicated sentence. So let's try to unpack it a bit. In essence, this phrase is telling the reader that if you want to see God, then you will find him in the face of Jesus. However, it's actually a lot more profound than that because not just everyone can do it. If you look at the original Greek, you'll find that the visual experience is far deeper than the, oh yeah, there's God over there. What's on the telly tonight? That sort of seeing. The phrase begins with the words, the light of the knowledge. And knowledge is the important word here. It's the Greek word gnosis. And it means, guess what? Knowledge. But it isn't the kind of knowledge that comes from just reading a book. It's the kind from having and wearing the t-shirt. You have to have gained this knowledge from doing the thing, not just hearing about it. And there's a fancy term for this, which is experiential knowledge. So let's plug this definition into verse 6 to see what difference it makes. Instead of, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we might read, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of understanding by personal experience of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So to know God, we must experience Jesus Christ. That's very helpful to know. But it turns out that there's a whole herd of rather large elephants in this particular room. They are there because to know Christ in this particular way absolutely requires that first He is your Lord and Savior. Perhaps you've seen this phrase somewhere, no God, no peace. No God, no peace. Now there are two possible understandings of the word for peace. The first is internal. It's a wonderful chilled out feeling that all is well with the world. The second is that peace is the opposite of war. And it's right here that we find our pachyderms, trumpets, trunk, trunks trumpeting loudly and smashing things up with their huge feet. You see, if Jesus is not your saviour, then you are at war with God because of your sins. And he's rather more powerful than you. His feet will invariably win no matter how much you duck and dive. So, no God, N-O, peace. That's not a great position to be in, is it? Because there's obviously an alternative. K-N-O-W, no God, by repenting and accepting Jesus as your saviour, and then you will enjoy peace with him permanently. And you will also know experientially the fruits of that peace. His love, his guiding hand, and finally eternal life with him in a brand new earth where all of your present life's burdens and woes are left far behind. That peace and fruit of salvation are exactly the treasure that Paul is speaking about in verse 7. Here that we encounter the first paradox that I spoke of earlier. He says that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Oh, that's a peculiar place to put them, I think, particularly 
when you contemplate the true personal value of salvation. I'd be rather surprised if anyone here in this room had not read a book or seen a movie in which some incredibly athletic hero had decoded the cryptic clues on an ancient map and followed them on an incredibly perilous journey through a trap-laden labyrinth to finally enter a space filled with piles and piles of diamonds and rubies and gold. Woohoo! I'm rich beyond imagining. Well, that's usually the climax of the movie. We don't often see what happened in the rest of our hero's life. So we might ask ourselves this question. What would our athletic hero do with all that treasure when they got it home? Would they leave it in the garden outside for anyone to help themselves? I don't think so. No, he'd, he'd vault with laser beams and alarms and guard towers with machine guns and vicious dogs. Inside the vault we might have some tasteful lighting with particularly beautiful items nestling on purple silk cushions on a plinth for us to come and admire whenever we might feel like it. That's what you do with treasure, Dave. Don't be a dummy and leave it in the garden in an earthen vessel. Yet here it is. We have this treasure of all treasures, of knowing God, being at peace with Him through Christ, held exactly in that. The vessel is you and I, friends. And earthen in nature is a factual definition. Genesis 2.7 says that the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God takes the very, very ordinary dust and through his extraordinary power makes a living, breathing, incredibly complex human being. And Every last one of us owes our being to that profound moment and it is one we never escape. We are reminded of those humble origins again when we hear at the graveside, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. That's also from Genesis, you know. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. We also see that God is sometimes pictured as a potter. For example, in Isaiah 29. You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make me? Can the pot say of the potter, he knows nothing? That's what we do to God sometimes. And aside from these scriptural references at the time Paul was writing this, clay was used everywhere just like plastic is today, although thankfully without its polluting problems. Anything at all that needed to be contained was put into an earthen vessel of some type, jugs, cups, pots and pans, and consequently they were found everywhere and they had very little value. If you broke one, you couldn't mend it and it would just be thrown away. So this was an everyday fact of life for the folk who would read this letter, which cleverly served to illustrate the paradox. A great treasure of salvation held where? In the most ordinary and fragile of common containers. Now why did God make humans like this? Our fragility isn't particularly attractive. Perhaps we might think that a better idea would be ha have been to give all Christians an amazing new body that could be invisible 
or fireproof or could shoot death rays from the eyes. Really, really cool stuff, you know. It would be a great encouragement for non-believers to be saved. The best and biggest ever advert. Look at me, now Jesus is my Lord. All this can be yours too if you just repent. But wait, there's more. If you repent in the next five minutes, you can have real wings and everything. Well, if you looked at the text, you already know the answer. We just couldn't handle it. We'd misuse such advantages to gain power and privilege, taking the glory for ourselves and not for God, even though it was solely by His power and authority that we were made so. This is why we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. The Lord is wise beyond our ability to understand it. He has put the treasure of the gospel inside weak and frail men and women so that others can see how those who hold it have been transformed by the power of the gospel. They will know for certain that it must have been done by supernatural means, not anything natural. So we might ask, how super is that supernatural? Well, the Greek word used here for excellence is hyperbole, from which we derive the modern word hyperbole. Now, hyperbole is used to describe sentences which use deliberate exaggeration for effect, such as, I saw millions of cars today. Well, of course you didn't see millions of cars, but you did mean to emphasize that there was an unusually large number. Hyperbole, its Greek ancestor, means to throw beyond the usual mark. And that's the truth right here. God's power is far, far beyond any mark that any human could imagine. Yet in the most incredible way, He has placed a mighty power within us, the Holy Spirit, indwelling each and every believer from the moment of salvation. It is as though He has caged lightning inside a light bulb. Now if anybody tried that in real life, the fragile glass of that bulb would not last a nanosecond. It would be blasted to pieces, melted and destroyed by an uncontrollable force. But the Lord has accomplished exactly such a thing by setting His Holy Spirit within each believer. In this case, the bulb is not destroyed. It shines with a clear, bright light into the darkness all around it for all with eyes to see. This isn't a story about someone else. It's personal. Each and every one of us here who profess Jesus as Lord shine that very light. But remember though that you are merely the bulb and He is the light. All of it. You may have heard the saying that God is not so much interested in our ability as our availability. God desires humble, inconspicuous, weak, fragile clay pots who are continually willing to be emptied of self so that they might be filled with the Spirit and are therefore empowered to give out this treasure of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It is that lightning in a light bulb that gives Paul the conviction to write the very next verse. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, 
but not destroyed. Perhaps you've seen or know something of the sport of free diving. It's pretty extreme. The object of the exercise is to go as deep as you can in the water without the aid of any external breathing apparatus. And the current world record stands at 214 meters, or if you're still old school, 702 feet. And although competitors can use a special weighted sled to pull them down, and then a helium balloon to get them back up, they are still holding their breath for something like 10 minutes. Wow. Do you know what the world record for holding your breath is? 25 minutes. So it has to be said that the gentleman concerned had been hyperventilating on pure oxygen for some time before, but still, wow. Anyway, back to our diver. Water's pretty heavy stuff, so as you go down, the pressure exerted on one square inch of your body increases by one atmosphere, or about 14.6 pounds per square inch for every 10 meters of depth. And please don't ask me why I'm mixing imperial measurements with metric, because that's Mr. Google's fault. <laughs> anyway, at 214 meters, our freediving hero is being squeezed by 312 pounds on every square inch of his body. And that's like one and a half large people standing on an area the size. Okay. Now, enduring that pressure is really dangerous because we all have these air spaces inside our bodies, our lungs, but also our ears and our sinuses. And I guess there are some folk that I've met who appear to have an air space between the ears as well. <laughs> Thus, if air isn't added to these spaces to compensate for the outside pressure, well, serious injury is going to be certain. So free divers have special techniques that they use, like breathing out into their mask through their nose, um, which protects the sinuses, and holding their noses with a shut mouth and trying to breathe out through their ears. You've probably done that in an aeroplane or in a car. And if they're careful to use these techniques to equalize the pressure well, they can safely descend and ascend again without injury. So as you can see, having the same pressure inside as outside can be pretty important. And that's what Paul is explaining here, although I don't think they had crazy free divers back then. First, he presents this picture of the fragile clay vessel and then adds to it the pressure being applied from every side. And just to enrich in your mental picture, can I mention that the, the root of the Greek word rendered here as hard-pressed is also used to to describe the crushing of grapes for their juice. So what should be the in inevitable result of such a force meeting a weak barrier? Well, disintegration, disaster, unless the pressure inside the vessel is the same as the pressure outside. Christians are going to experience hard times in just the same way as every other person we all know this from our own experience. Sometimes the pressure becomes too much for a person to bear and they break down because their own inner resources are exhausted or are too small to push back against the need. Their internal pressure isn't enough to keep out the crushing nature of the world and its woes. But what about the person who, through Christ, 
has the Holy Spirit living within them? What about the sure hope of life eternal that the gospel brings? These are the things that enable believers to persevere under the most trying of circumstances. These are the things that enabled Paul to write that he is hard-pressed, but not crushed. So does this mean then that all Christians should be happy, smiling people, brushing off any and all difficulties like an ant on an elephant's foot? And so consequently, if I am not a happy, smiling person all the time, is this just another profound way that I fail as a believer? Short answer, no. And here comes the long answer with some more Greek. Let's read the first part of verse 8 again. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Can you see that the pressure Paul was under always had some effect? He was honest. He was hard-pressed. He was perplexed. Why is this happening to me? He was persecuted and struck down. He was completely honest about the way things that affected him. There is no false pretense here at all. The world presses in, and Paul definitely feels it in his flesh. All the time, all of the verse, verse, verbs in verses 8 and 9 are in the present tense, which means that Paul was continuously afflicted, persecuted, perplexed, and struck down. So here again, we find paradox. Note the repeated words, but and not. They are small but very important. But represents a 180 degree change of direction. He feels the pressure, but he has a matching response. He is squeezed but not squashed. And the Greek word used here for not means absolutely not, from which we understand that the response is never lacking in the slightest. And that's helpful because sometimes it's a series of small things that defeats us, not a single huge event. Some time ago, I read an interesting report about how the cruise ship, the Queen Elizabeth II, hit the ocean floor when leaving New York for England, even though the water that she was in should have been deep enough for her to sail over safely. So how's that possible? Ship, a bit of water, and then the ground. Should be okay. The answer is a matter of physics. You see, the ship sailed over a shallow area at some time for, and at speed. And this meant that the water displaced underneath her was also displaced at speed. It turns out that there's a physical law that describes when a fluid or a gas is moved in this way. Bernoulli's principle, which states that an increase in the speed of a fluid occurs simultaneously with a de decrease in static pressure. So simply put, the speed goes up, the pressure has to go down. So the situation is this. We have reduced pressure underneath the ship for a long time, which means that she is pressed lower and lower and lower and lower in the water until eventually, bang, crash, loud screeching noises, startled passengers cursing on the bridge. She scrapes along the bottom. Cue awkward call to the owner. Well, that's just like us. Little things over a long time can drag us down gradually until 
bang, crash, loud screeching noises, etc., etc., etc. We scrape along the bottom of life. If I might extend this metaphor a little, the Queen Elizabeth II certainly had a bad experience, but she did not sink. She safely returned her passengers to port, and so will those who have put their trust in Jesus. Despite that, we are hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, in despair, persecuted, and struck down. But we are not crushed. We are not in despair, not forsaken, and not destroyed, simply and only because of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We may feel inadequate, and truly we may be so, but this doesn't disqualify us from being used by God. He made us, and he said we were good. That means we were perfectly fit for purpose. Now you might say that that all changed after the fall, and that is true since that is where the pressing and crushing and persecuting and striking down all began. Yet this is the very point of these verses. The Lord did not make a way for his spirit to live within us and sustain us in a fallen world so that we might have a cruisy life. His purpose in equipping us was to enable us to serve and represent him under the most trying of times, to show everyone who God is and what he should be to us. He should be our Father and our Lord and our Comforter. That intent is given to us right here in verse 10. We're not crushed, despairing, forsaken, or destroyed, so that we always carry in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested, shown in our body. You may have heard people say, why is this happening to me? And it's quite likely that it's, you've said it to yourself when times are tough and you feel you can't go on. Trials will always come in this life. But the important thing is that they aren't ever without meaning. God has equipped you with his spirit within so that these things can be used for his glory and your good. Only one. If he is Lord to you. So the question follows naturally. Is he your Lord? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it's hard to know how to, how to thank you for the provision you've made for us. The thought that, that you your, yourself in the form of the Holy Spirit is set within us, set within me, is overwhelming. And yet, Lord, I don't always think about that. Often I just think about what's happening to me. And I pray, Lord, that thanks to your word that we've heard today, that we would remember that the Spirit is there and we would go to him, to that inner power, that inner pressure, so that we can cope with all the things that life throws at us. And Lord, we would do so in a way that honors and glorifies you.
It says, yes, world, things are bad, but Christ is mine. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.